You are listening to EdTech.fm. My name is Autumn Keynes, and I'm joined today by the Byron Rausch. Um, Nicole and Corey are not with us today, but they are working on a separate project. Byron, say hi to the people. Hello, and I'm Byron. Excited to hear today to talk about open educational resources. And uh, I suppose since Autumn threw it to me, I will introduce our guest today. First time on an edtech.fm podcast, we're going to have uh, Dr. Gregory Zobel. And I'll let him introduce himself and kind of kick off uh, the podcast with his uh, introduction to open educational resources. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Gregory Zobel, but I prefer to go by GZ. I teach in the Division of Teacher Education at Western Oregon University. Our degree has a funky name. It's Masters of Science in Education Information Technology. The, the name is old, um, back like I think 10, 15 years ago. It's essentially it's ed tech. And I've been here for a couple of years. Um, background is in uh, technical communication and rhetoric. And before that, I taught comp for a couple of years. Um, love teaching comp and I actually kind of miss it, which is kind of odd. Never thought that would be the case. Anyhow, so the, the main thing, my main interest with OERs and the question that I want to throw myself is, why am I so interested in OERs? And the response is, it's the money issue. And it's not just the saving of money, but the social justice issues surrounding money and then to a larger extent, how that impacts um, the corporatization of higher education um, the what I consider to be the fiscal and ethical corruption that takes place between higher education and the companies that work with us. That it's similar to what we see in scholarly publishing, but if we can remove the ability of outside organizations and structures to forcibly extract money from our students, we can save a lot of people a lot of cash. And I think we can remove a lot of the politicization of some of the content. And so to me, what OERs really offer is a way to do potentially anti-racist, anti-colonialist, and specifically anti-corporate work in a means that not only allows us to create material and, and curate material of use to our students, but equally important is activist because it stops our dollars from going to those organizations and structures which we see as unethical or which we have problems with. Or some of these organizations, let's say there are, there are a few, there's a handful of conglomerates in the textbook publishing world. Some of these are associated with testing and statewide testing. So in my view, if on my end, I as an individual instructor can prevent – 200 to 2000 dollars per class per term from going to a corporate body that also controls testing i'm not only saving my students money i'm inhibiting the flow of profit to a group that i really hold in disdain and that to me is coupling education with activism and even if you don't want to do oers I think this is how we can redirect our students to purchase textbooks from either our local bookstore or if the bookstore is operated by a corporate entity, you can redirect that towards independent online booksellers or smaller presses. It's the same thing, I think, as instead of going to the big mega bookshop, 
you can go to the indie bookseller. All right. I think what you just, the way you introduced the topic, I think provoked a lot of different questions for me. Um, and I think one of the ones that I want to start with um, is institutional versus student money. Um, I think if, for those that listen to our episode on open educational resources, I think most of us uh, that participated were kind of administrators. So when we we talked about saving student money and things like that, and we talked a little bit about models for developing OER. But I think at a lot of schools, um, getting support to save student money is great, and it gets you on the newspaper and all of that stuff, but um, often it comes at the cost of spending institutional dollars. And that's something you brought up in your article, I believe uh, Tacoma Community College spent uh, something, I think $200,000. We'll make sure to put a link to your article from Hybrid Pedagogy into the show notes so people can read that. But, you know, so the school invested $200,000 and it saved the students, you know, millions of dollars or whatever it was. Um, But that's money that the institution wasn't otherwise going to spend on that, on textbooks, on creating or maintaining material. I just think it's a big challenge to get support to spend that money, even though it reaps tremendous rewards. It's almost like, you know, textbooks are kind of this untold cost of higher education. You know, students are often spending three, four, five hundred dollars a semester um, or more on textbooks, even if they buy used ones. Um, Can you talk a little bit, you know, from a faculty perspective, you know, what kind of, or, you know, as an administrative faculty, whatever your perspective. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy as as you know I'm happy to talk about just about anything. Um, what <laughs> what I what I would suggest for those people who are working with administration or are struggling to persuade administration is really to look at the Tacoma CC model because what they did there is is so brilliant and I think it strikes me and it struck me at the time when I was listening to this narrative I was like Are you serious? You managed to do this, and the reason why I was so stunned is that they had cross-campus collaboration. It involved the um, the e-campus or the online computing, and he actually took funds from one of his, for one of his positions to, I believe he got funding from administration for a one to two year position, after which that expense would be rolled into his shop, his e-learning shop. So it was actually paying for an individual with a as an instructional designer and who knew OER to have the skill set to help facilitate and grow other people's, specifically faculty's people, to work with the OERs. And that's a form of investment that I think can come under you know, professional development, it can come under faculty, it can come under staff. There are ways to frame it and it's not just textbook. And especially if you are talking to administration and you frame it as a temporary position, then there might be grants or short-term burst or growth kind of funds which are available because you're not saying let's add this person permanently, let's add this person for one or two years. And if the position works out successfully, then the university might decide to hire that person and keep that person. Their roles may be split you know, into or their role may be split into several other roles that other people take on. But I think what happens and what we can look at Tacoma CC and see is that it gave the school time to train and work with interested, invested faculty who could build up the resources and build up the skill sets. So even if that position disappeared, there was still a larger culture present. And to me, that's is important because 
administration is not committing to a long-term financial investment. It was like, what, $80,000, $100,000 over a period of two years? That isn't that much money. Similarly, though, they went and persuaded the students to kick down just about the same amount of money so that everybody is involved. So instead of it being a top-down decision coming from administration faculty, you are going to develop OERs, or instead of students saying, we want OERs to save us money, faculty who are invested were also involved. And so it's much more collaborative, much more community centered and developed. And that to me is a way of figuring out how you can creatively spread the cost across the campus, but it's something that everybody's invested in. And in terms of administration and why they may or may not be interested in in throwing down some coin for this kind of project is that if you can tell your students or students know when they show up that they're going to save hundreds of dollars in courses because they don't have to buy the textbooks, that is a growth incentive for students who are there. And I mean, there were anecdotes. There were, I don't think they did studies or didn't have numbers, but multiple anecdotes of students who were deciding to remain or take additional courses because at a community college in most states, 200 bucks for a textbook or two textbooks for around $300, that could buy you another course in terms of tuition. So in terms of FTE and enrollment. As a faculty member, what I see essentially is, is this going to be an administrative, administration-driven top-down management program about what we need to do in our classrooms, in which case I will probably resist it and resent it because within education and in teacher education, they are, are, there are already enough management and rules and restrictions on us. If instead it's generated and they seek to do it collaboratively and they want us to invest time and they want to work with us and say the students are interested, then that to me is a completely different project. Whether it's growing up naturally or incentivized by, you know, like several individuals, encouraged by several individuals who get the backing of deans or administration, that I can see becoming involved with. But yeah, just a top down, I don't see it. And especially don't see administration doing it just to save students money. Instead, I think the institution can have a lot of growth from this because if you start looking at open ed resources, you might start considering some open source software. You might consider how the open culture and like ed camp and tech trainings and those kind of things can really change and shift your culture. A couple of things that I think are also, you know, big issues in adoption for OER are um, that right now I think the focus seems to be more on distribution versus curation, if that makes sense, or indexing versus curation. So, and you talked about this in your article, finding stuff is is hard and time consuming and, (laughs) you know, you know, there's the content, you have to look at the technology, how you're going to support it to students and things like that. Um, do you have any ideas for what kind of, for a model that could help? I, <laughs> this is more for me than anybody else. I don't know. I, I could offer some, what I believe are some semi-snarky comments, but this is, and it's based on my own experience, which is that... As a as faculty member, I like to think that I have some pretty decent assignments, and I have I have some interesting work. And so my focus 
if I look at and think about OERs or if I'm exploring OERs, which actually I'd done for a couple years off and on, and then I saw this presentation up at Building Bridges and I was like, oh yeah, I need to get back into this. Well, there were two main tracks for me. One of them was sharing what I have. Like, here are my here are my brilliant things. Let me share it with the world. And my approach was essentially just to put that on scribe or scripty or however you say it. Because what I had noticed is that just like blogs, OERs, there's a gazillion in one of them. And I did not think that my my stuff was so awesome that it would belong in any compilation. Now I'm also one of the people that love to use other people's material, and in the culture in which I was raised as uh, as faculty, which was composition, everybody shares everybody else's like handouts, writing prompts, worksheets, rubrics. I mean, occasionally you have people who are uptight about copyright, but overall, it was a massive culture of sharing. The problem is, is that as we see now, what do you use and I honestly, at this point, I don't like going on searches. And I even had a class about, you know, like learning objects and helping students find different resources. And you can find these indexes of all these different materials. At this point, that's too much of a mess for me. And here's why. I'll spend hours and I've spent probably 20 to 40 hours of my life searching OERs. At this point, I just prefer the social approach, which is... I'm I'm teaching a, a class on social media and Web 2.0. Who do I know that, or are my friends with on Twitter that's like awesome about you know Web 2.0? Alice Dare is one of them. So you know, and then I also did this with uh, um, hybrid pedagogy and inside of Slack. I was like, what ideas do you have? What lessons do you have? What tools do you focus on? And I got a bunch of good stuff back. And with Alice. She sent me to her Pinterest page, which is loaded, and then sent a couple of papers and posters along to me that I can use. Those are, to me, a more immediate gratification and a and way to use resources. So they weren't directly created as open educational resources, but they're resources that are created, things that are created by colleagues who I trust and respect and I know that I have the permission to integrate, but also they have, in most cases, you know, the Creative Commons licensing, you know, like don't profit or exploit, you know, cite who you're using, and that's it. And those are the limitations on it. And so at this point, I'm pretty much going by networking, familiarity, and reputation of who the person is, as opposed to going out on the web, because I've tried going out on the web. And it is a it is a hot bothered mess, and that's why I left. And at this point, I'm trying to hybridize my approach by knowing enough people who are interested in open educational resources, so that if and when they promote material, I'll take a look at it. Or if I have questions about certain kinds of material, I'll ask them because that way I'm going to the subject matter expert. They can tell me what the best stuff is that they found, and boom, we're on it. Yeah, so I'll let Autumn ask a question next, but (laughs) I think that really highlights um, a a lot. So I think institutionally often when you're like, all right, we need to adopt OER, they look at tools like a learning object repository or start referring to people to places like Merlot or other kind of OER resources like Connections. Um, And I think a lot of that is because 
you know, often our systems are supported by IT people and they don't want to get in the weeds and really work with faculty and help them build like the skills that they need. But also, um, you know, Alan and Seaman do this annual report and 34.8% of the people uh, identified working with the LMS as the most important factor in selecting teaching resources, which to me is kind of insane wait. because it's a link, right? Like, yeah, you that's should, a little weird. It's like wait, the world wait. is your oyster. <laughs> can you can you re? Will you restate that? <laughs> can you say that one more time? I have to get my brain around it. The question was, what is the most important factor in selecting teaching resources? And works with LMS was thirty four point eight percent of people's responses. So works with L- or selecting teaching resources was a question, but uh, the infographic I put a link to it is about open educational resources. So I I assume that they're really talking about open educational resources, but I, I'd have to look at the report for sure. Um, but I you know I think people get in this frame of mind where they go to a place like Connections or Malo, don't see what they want, don't see something that meets their needs, and they're like, all right, there's no open educational resource for learning how to you know code JavaScript. I guess I'll just have to buy this book, you know, when really there's just the whole world is out there. I think part of part of what you're identifying is there's no real Wikipedia Mm -hmm. for OERs. Mm -hmm. And because essentially from what I've gathered and all those places that you mentioned, I've looked at all of them at one point or another. And essentially what I found is that I... I could steal some things. Like if I was going to teach uh, a composition intro to comp or basic writing course, I could find plenty of materials. I teach mostly graduate online courses. And this the one of the perks and the problems of that is that I can customize my courses a lot. I can make it quirky or I can update it. And when you're working with some topics like technology or social issues or what have you, your content is constantly changing as opposed to many iterations of composition or calculus or introductory undergraduate level courses, often the content remains pretty stable. Sometimes it stagnates, um, but often it's pretty stable. The books that students read or the materials they read or, or they may discover online, those things may change, but a lot of the core principles and practices remain the same. And so I think it's easier in some ways to find OERs on the courses that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of college students are taking simultaneously. And I am not in that population right now of faculty mm. who create content for that. Mm, so, and this, that's real. it is, it is really important to consider. And it also depends on how controlling an individual um, program is, because I know that in some of the programs where I taught composition, just as an example of a course that almost all students have to take, there was a great amount of variability between um, programs and the autonomy. And are you a new instructor? Have you been teaching there a while? Do you have to use these required books? Do you, or is it just a required handbook? Or can you choose a handbook? Or can you choose the readings? Or do they have to all do the same stupid five-paragraph essay at the end of the term with this set of textbooks and it's all set up and you're, you're you know, like goose-stepping towards a goal? And that's where I think a lot of local context is important when people are considering OERs 
And I saw OERs when I was working as an adjunct as a way for me to liberate, in some sense, portions of my class from control. We had to have the handbook. They had to do a certain kind of portfolio. But I could bring in other materials and other readings because they hadn't locked that down yet. And that meant that I could do different kinds of activities and I could find those from colleagues. I could find them in OER databases, et cetera. Now, where I'm at working now, there's a small population of faculty who teach and work in the same field I do. And generally, I've found the graduate faculty are very, um, we like to design our courses custom style and not have people tell us what to do. And because of the financial weights that our students bring in, as long as we meet the general course learning outcomes, we're offered a free, pretty large amount of autonomy. And that means in terms of OERs, it's harder to find materials. The only counterexample I would say is when we look to people like Corey Doctorow or Lawrence Lessig, um, individuals who are in a larger cultural sense battling for and working with Creative Commons, working with um, anti-copyright or limited licensing or whatever. However, when they're out in the general culture and we can integrate those individuals into our materials, into our classes, um, there's another one, Dana Boyd. And one thing that we can do, I mean, you can buy her book or you can download it for free. Same thing with Dr. O. You can buy it, you can download it for free. If we build curricula that are structured in part or intentionally use these external resources that are from outside of education, that are not within the cant of our field, you know, then I think we can start providing other models for OERs. I think what we lack is a middle ground and it's either highly specialized or it's generalists from outside the field. And I don't have a solution. I wish I wish there was one, but it just seems to me that if you can if you stumble across cool open CC material or OERs, share them on Twitter and use them in your classes. And then yeah, that yeah. way that way your students will become aware of it and maybe some other people will share with you. I do like your approach of um, engaging social media and just engaging your own social network. It seems very grassroots. And uh, I think that fits in really well with your philosophy. Um, my question for you is has to do with your students and how they receive these OERs when you bring them into class and how much like do you do you frame it up for them do you do you share some of your philosophy about why you're why you go with these kind of resources over um paid resources and how do they accept that um that's a really good question and this is where things kind of might be embarrassing but i'll just be transparent in that <laughs> nice <laughs> we appreciate um, that <laughs> i i have rarely used entire like a bunch of oers in my graduate level work. Um, usually it's either stuff that's posted online or it's assignments and that other people have done and they're listed on blogs or it's linked from Twitter or here's what we're doing. And then I imitate. And uh, most of the time I try to give credit, at least I try to say thanks, give them props. 
And sometimes when I'm writing the stuff up, I may give them credit when I'm writing it up. But again, I'm from the field of composition. And so I assume that if you're sharing things online that you want it to spread and I'll try and do my best to be polite and give you props. Similarly with my students, when it's sometimes if, if it's a phenomenal idea or it's something really unique and represents an individual's vision, then I try and say, oh, this person came up with this idea or this is their approach. But frankly, that doesn't happen very much. Um, again, because the nature of my class, there are relatively to few OERs that I use, except for those examples that I mentioned, like Dana Boyd I've used. Um, there have been some other texts I don't remember off the top of my head. And the response that we have in class is pretty much, oh, cool. You know, you can read it for free or you can buy the book. I suggest that they do whichever one. Most students tend to read it for free. But we do have people who like hard copy and so they order it. But I get a sense of appreciation or a gratitude of not extracting profit or extracting additional costs from the students. But again, I need to give a caveat for my class and what we do a lot in my program is that at this point, I rarely require textbooks. There's only one class that I require any specific ongoing textbook, and that's an instructional design. And that's because the book that I use um, is brilliant. And I'm spacing on the title right now. It's brilliant. It's $50. Um, but it is a streamlined ID. And I use that because I haven't found anything that can compare to it. Other than that, because our focus is on ed tech, we try to use all online resources. And that intentionally moves us away from our students paying for texts. Now there are a couple of classes that are ed requirements where they do have to take those te- have to buy some texts. I'm not in charge of those classes, but overall I think our students are paying little compared to other programs and especially other graduate programs. I don't want them to have to buy books when we can find it all online and it's the nature of our degree, it's ed tech. I mean they should find it and what their reactions are is it's usually, oh, okay, this is cool. We don't have to pay money for the texts. Where I sometimes get some pushback is when I do require them to buy proprietary services like lynda.com. Hmm. But I always introduce that. I frame it and I justify it. But I'm having to think about this more and more because, like I said, I initially did look at OERs. They were so difficult to find that I basically moved away from them except for entire popular texts that I could bring in, like, you know, Lessig or um, – but now I'm having to think about it. And so I know Dr. O gives his books away I mean, as long as you don't reprint them and try and profit. And because his content is so much related to – I mean, students – and privacy and activism and you look at little brother and I'm like okay I should take some of the doctor's material I've read part of context I need to read this as young adult fiction I'm intentionally choosing an individual who represents something within the field he represents and he acts based on his convictions and his works are available on that if I can bring that into my class that's cool and then I think oh 
he's writing fiction and he's writing nonfiction. He's writing on many of these issues that we address in cultural, social, and um, political issues in education. Are there other texts of his that I can bring in so I can build a course around Dr. O's work that addresses education? And most of our students in these classes teach K through 12. And this is young adult literature. So having figuring out how I can implement and integrate what's happening in the real world into, or I should say outside of the academy with OERs and all these interesting movements and open source culture into the class and bring it in. That to me is a, the is the best approach rather than trying to set out and say, I need some OERs for my class because you know I want to like smash the state or something. I mean, that's not... It's not my approach. I'm, it's first, it's got to be quality content. But when I identify the quality content, I will choose and give priority to individuals who are open and individuals who are transparent and individuals who are anti-corporate. I think when you, you say you give priority to people like Dr. O, things like that that are anti-corporate, which is great. Um, I think one of the things that I kind of find appalling recently, so Pearson, for example, they have a, a product called Equella, and in general, they're just a bunch of other tools like this where you know people kind of open wash their existing content or find ways to integrate OER into their book, which in some ways is a nice step, but it's also like we also kind of need to break our dependency, right? All right, are you talking about their parasitism? Yeah, 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 yeah. The the best analogy I think I have, I don't know, I don't think it's an, an analogy, the best comparison I have is if you go to Amazon and you look up interesting things, like choose an obscure band or choose an obscure topic, and you go to Amazon and you're like, oh, okay, there's a book here. But actually all the book is is it's a compilation of Wikipedia entries. And some idiots ripped that, mm-hmm. put it into, they, you know, or some bot has ripped it. It's put it into a format that can sell on the Kindle, and they may or they may not get some sales. And there's the parasitism on the open materials, like the Creative Commons materials to me, I find much more offensive than on public domain materials. Because public domain materials, they've expired right. and, or they were funded and supported by, the, by public dollars to begin with. Whereas with a lot of Creative Commons material, people have created and they put it out there so that it could be used. Unfortunately... There are some groups that are happy to extract or they're, they're willing to build frameworks around, you know, the, the free and open educational resources. The, near, the best thing I can – the only comment that I have is that – I mean I see Pearson as a giant parasite anyway. And so it does not surprise me that they've done this. They're extracting profit and they've, from a variety of different arenas. And this is not new, but this is not new behavior for Pearson. This is just – a model of treating things as, oh God, what's his name? Schumacher, you know, uh, small is beautiful. And it's, this is a corporate model where rather than regarding things like creative commons resources as resources, as capital, as opposed to as a resource, these things have intrinsic inherent value and when we abuse them, they lose their value. It's like pulling oil up out of the ground. There's only a certain amount of them. 
And I think that argument somewhat transfers over to open education that when you only view this as something that you can extract for profit or manipulate for profit as opposed to to seeing it as capital that you can invest in. And I think there's a very different way of framing the material. One is in terms of extracting, you design a search engine that goes and pulls from all these other people's work and they come to you because you have the search engine in the gateway. Just like Google or just like Pearson, it becomes you pay to use the gateway, whether it's with your time and intention, as opposed to individuals could be finding and identifying the best of resources, identifying what we have as a community, as our cultural capital, as our, you know, like, I don't know what the word is for it. I'm spacing out on it right now. It's in terms of our inheritance, our intellectual lineage, something that we built up together and putting this out there so that more people can share it and use it. And there are very different approaches here. And to me, I think it's important that we don't try and squeeze every ounce of attention and profit from things. Instead, I'd much rather like to see a robust collection of res- of materials, of capital, as it were, for our culture to go forth and you know have 17 different composition handbooks, have social media training handbooks for teachers, have seven or eight of them. And then people could choose the different modules that they want to assemble the best one, have it written by the top experts in the field. That, to me, it shows reinvestment in the community, which I think is the entire point of what open source is, right? You take code that's you, so you can do something. It's a little bit wonky or hinky, so you mod it, you make it a little bit better, and you give it back to everybody. As opposed to you wrote some code – I'm going to grab some of it. I'm going to come over here and I'm going to privatize it. And that's the problem that I have with corporations getting involved with OERs. On the other hand, you have to admit the power of their marketing and their education and their dollars. They may be one of the best ways to get awareness of OERs into administrative heads because they have the financial weight that they do, Pearson does, and they can make people pay attention. But I don't like them extracting for their own gain the work of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people for education, and then they turn it into some kind of gateway that they profit from. Yeah, I think one of the big risks is that, you know, so Pearson, they have their open content that they have introduced and things like that. I think it's a big risk, though, that you know, they're taking things or helping faculty develop or encouraging faculty to develop like a lesson plan for doing blah, blah, blah in class, but it's in the context of Pearson resources. Mm-hmm. So the lesson plan itself is an OER, but it's an OER that, you know, might require this $150 textbook. Yeah. The, the real question to me is if, if it's an OER, then I can go share it on Scribd or Scribd or however you say that. If I can't, if I as faculty can't take my the IP that I developed on that platform and walk and share it with other people, then it's not it's not an OER, it's not open. And similarly, if I say, "Oh, you can use this, but you can't modify it," that is not open to me. And open in in my eyes means essentially other people can do what they want with it. 
some of them will pay me respect for you and thanks for using it. Other people won't. But what I really want is I want to try and improve other people's teaching. And most importantly, I want to reduce the pain and suffering that the schooling system inflicts on students. And I think by sharing good material, good lessons, good structures, good experiences, good assignments, and good you know, inquiries for students to pursue, we can counter the painful, troubling, and problematic schooling experiences that many, if not most, students seem to have at undergrad, graduate, and K-12 levels. And that's ideally, I think, what OEs are, OERs can do is they can you know, spread compassionate work, interesting work, non-competitive or non-corporate-centered work. And that is, in my view, the real thing that we have as a community is, is this tool. And that can spread because it's free and we don't have to go through bodies like Pearson. And that, I think, couples to the social media networks and things like some of the more progressive MOOCs where you see a lot of interest in compassion, you see a lot of interest in sharing. Much of this is performed and embodied and those culture of practices around, say, open work, like CL MOOC, which is happening right now, where there is an entire ethos of you do remix, you do remediate, you do rebuild, and you're doing this with your colleagues, experiencing that and providing that, I think, to other faculty who may not be as interested in OERs is perhaps one way to participate in the culture. And it's not just create a syllabus and share it with other people. No, like forget your syllabus. Just come build some stuff. Experiment with technology. See what it can do. See what open play can do, what creativity can do. When you go and you play and then you come back to the workspace, then you can revision how you design your class. And that to me is where... I don't think we can uh, take OERs outside of the larger environments in which we're functioning. If you have corporatists running your administration completely and they're determining your textbooks and they're determining your evaluation and they're completely controlling your time, I'm willing to bet you don't have a lot of time to play. And thus, I think it's important to go play. And if you go play with open resources or you open source or with memes or whatever, and then you come back to the corporatist environment, you can then see different ways of adjusting your environment to be more interesting, to be more engaging. But I think you have to step out and go into other environments. Well, and I think there's a huge media literacy part of that as well, right? If you're working within a closed system, there's not going to be much application you know, real world application of the outside of that system. You're always going to be working within somebody else's environment. Whereas if you're working in a more open environment, you can potentially apply that in different and more creative ways. It's, it all, every, I mean, I was trained as a rhetorician, so everything depends on audience and context. And it's important, I think, when we're talking about OERs, I think it's important that at some point we also address the issues of and, and discuss the issues of adjuncts and contingent laborers within higher education 
and they're growing, you know, numbers. What are they like 80%? And I see OERs as tying into this with the ad with adjuncts or contingent laborers in a variety of, of different ways. Adjuncts have a means to have an impact, not only in their classes, but also among their peers. If, for example, they are teaching at two or three different schools, which many of them are, if their schools are open enough, they can design the same assignments and use them across those sites. If they're smart or commonsensical or want a life, they've probably already done that. If they share these assignments with other adjuncts, with other contingents, they might be able to help save other contingents some labor. That's one of the things that I found when I was doing contingent labor myself is that I would go online and I would try and find good assignments that I could use and would fit the criteria of multiple institutions where I was teaching. Fortunately, each of the institutions was open enough that I could bring these assignments in. I think there's also points where you can gain reputation and presence within your community if you, whether or not you're a PhD or you have a master's, whether or not you're tenure track or you're a part-timer, you can gain a lot of presence and respect from your colleagues if you're developing resources that they use. While this is not the same as publication, and in many ways it's more useful because your colleagues know who you are and they're using that material. I don't think it will get you confirm or deny whether or not you'll get a job on the tenure track, but what it does do is it makes your name familiar. You're contributing to the economy of or the underground economy away from the corporatist material, but you're also building your own reputation. But finally, you are doing this work anyway for your courses. If you share it out, you have an opportunity to build relationships and reapply that for more social capital and to network with people. And so I think OERs is a way that folks who may be marginalized to gain additional capital, maybe some additional footsteps from work they're already engaged in. You've been listening to edtech.fm, where we take a look at educational technology through the lens of higher education. You just heard an interview by Autumn Keynes and Byron Rausch with Dr. Greg Zobel, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at Western Oregon University on Open Educational Resources, or OERs. The conversation continued, and we all talked about educational technology as a field and how professionals and academics can identify themselves in that field. You can find that podcast along with all of our other podcasts at edtech.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter at edtech underscore fm. I wanted to thank Greg for taking the time to speak with us and remind you that you can find his most recent article at hybridpedagogy.com. It's entitled, Why Open Educational Resources, OERs, Are Important for Critical Pedagogues. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you'll tune in again soon at edtech.fm.